In the book of Job, we read that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Somewhat less poetically, a friend of mine once declared, as one door closes, another slams in your face. And so as we're reading through scripture, we find that the lives of the saints are not just one long vacation time where the skies are blue and the sun shines gently upon us. Not long before the events of chapter 20, we have, as it were, stood with Jehoshaphat as uh, he made an alliance with Ahab, the epitome of a wicked king, and goes out to battle with the king of Syria. When he returns, having only narrowly escaped with his own life and the armies of Judah having not quite been destroyed but being put to flight, he returns a sadder and a wiser man and he takes up the task to which God had called him of ruling over the people. And at that point, as we we saw recently, he appoints uh, judges and gives them instruction that those who are to judge should do so not on the basis of what they think is right but upon the, the law of God. Not even what the king thinks is right, even the king himself, if we're following through on scripture and what it's saying, even the king himself is in submission to the law of God. It's not the king's law that is to be enforced, but the Lord's law. When Jehoshaphat returns, he is met by Jehu, the son of Hanani. As Jehu meets him, he says to Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? It's a good question. And of course, although it's not spelt out explicitly for us, it has reference to what has just happened as he has made an alliance with Ahab. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? And then at the very end of the account of the reign of Jehoshaphat, after the customary final words in which the acts of Jehoshaphat from first to last are written, the chronicles of Jehu, the very man who has been mentioned, the son of Hanani, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Then there is this final epitaph, even after the customary end where If we did not have our Bibles in front of us, we would expect whoever was reading from the Scripture to close the Bible at that point and say, well, that's the end of the story for Jehoshaphat. No. The Word of God then goes on to tell us that after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel. In other words, he had failed to learn the lesson. Wicked King Ahab died on the battlefield, or just nearby it, having been wounded by a random arrow, as the world might think, from the army of the king of Syria. And Jehoshaphat then takes up with his son. You think to yourself, Do you, have, you, have you learned nothing from your experience with King Ahab? Well, apparently he hadn't. And he decides that he wants to emulate uh, Solomon by building a large fleet, send them to Tarshish, which is 
probably way across the other end of the Mediterranean in uh, ancient Spain to bring back uh, all the sort of things that in King Solomon's day were brought back to enliven and to ennoble the court of King Solomon. So he builds his wonderful fleet. And the Lord raises up someone else to speak to him. Then Eliezer, son of Dodavahu. Well, what does he say? Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. Ships will be wrecked. Ahaziah is described as the one who acted wickedly, like father, like son, Ahab, and now his wicked son, Ahaziah. Well, perhaps in our bolder moments, we might wish that we had taken part in some of the events of uh, the scriptures so that our names might be recorded. Well, we see in uh, the life of Jehoshaphat that it wasn't just one long upward trend of uh, increasing godliness, but Perhaps standing before us is someone that we recognize because in our own experiences we have our own highs and our own lows. And it's not just one long upward progression in sanctification, but there are times when we stumble and indeed in which we fall. The evil that men do lives after them, and good is often tarred with their bones. And yet it is said of Jehoshaphat that the way of Asa... He walked in the way of Asa, his father, that's at verse 32, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Not perfect by any means, but he walked in the way of Asa and did what was right. And then there is that seemingly automatic refrain that we have noted as we've been making our way through Second Chronicles that so often, although much is done that is right and good, verse 33, the high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. Well, it's not the first time that we've encountered that though the high places have been torn down, the Asherah poles have been turned up, torn down, the next king arises and what does he have to do? He finds that he has to do exactly the same thing all over again. And in spite of the fact that uh, Jehoshaphat quite clearly wants to walk with the Lord, he stumbles and he gets things wrong and he's not the perfect and flawless man quite clearly and yet he has that desire to walk with the Lord. But he has found that though he might exercise, and we'll see this in this chapter, he desires to exercise godly leadership, he cannot legislate for the hearts of men. And the people, no matter how godly Jehoshaphat desired to be, how much he walked in the ways of his father, the people, well, their hearts were not turned towards the Lord. You can't legislate for the hearts of men. You can only exercise godly leadership. Well, let's see Jehoshaphat at his best before we take our leave of him. The enemy of God's people had arisen again. A great multitude, he was told, was coming against him. And it caused him uh, great alarm. And as we uh, work our way through the prayer that uh, Jehoshaphat opens up uh, before the people, we'll see just how great was his alarm. 
Well, it may be that you think that the, uh, the nature of being a brave man is that you don't fear anything. Well, that may be true, but I have suggested to you in the past, and I'll suggest it to you again, that really the, the braver man is the one that sees what is before him, fears it, and yet does what is right nonetheless. He overcomes his fears, even though he is scared, frightened. And Jehoshaphat quite clearly is scared by the prospect of what's facing him. There's a vast horde coming against him. And in his own words, he doesn't know what to do. Well, what do we do when we don't know what to do? And that's where the the leadership of Jehoshaphat shows itself as its very best. And there's something really encouraging for each and every one of us. When we're facing difficulties and we have no idea how we're going to face them, we have no idea how we might overcome them or what the result might be, we bring it to the Lord. Not because prayer is the last resort, although sadly, sometimes it does seem as though we treat it as the last resort. Well, I can't do anything, but I can pray when prayer should really be our first resort. So as we think about uh, Jehoshaphat's position, he was afraid, but he doesn't panic. He acknowledges the seriousness of the situation. And he sets his face to seek the Lord. Why does he do this? Verse 12, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a verse that's worth committing to memory. Whenever we find ourselves in a situation, whether it is individually in our own personal experience, our our, our family, our close-knit group, or whether it is uh, as a nation. And is it not sometimes, perhaps, uh, more, more often than we recognize in God's grace and providence that he sets before us a text which seems peculiarly situated to deal with the Sorrows, the burdens of the hour. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It's a realistic assessment of the situation. Jehoshaphat was scared, but we might say he had good reason to be scared. Well, in such a situation, it's difficult for us immediately to see that this is indeed a blessing. It doesn't seem like a blessing. I don't suppose it seemed to Jehoshaphat or indeed to many other people in that particular hour that God had actually blessed them greatly. But perhaps if we draw a parallel with another situation in which one individual find himself in difficult situations, we can see that indeed there is a blessing even when we are facing that 
overwhelming horror that is coming against us. The young man of which I, to which I refer is the young man which we take customly refer to as the prodigal son. As you know, that parable from the lips of Jesus, he had squandered everything he'd been given, gone off into the far country, and uh, a famine arose in the country. And we're just simply told he began to be in want. Well, the trinkets that he had bought, he then sold much less than what he paid for them, undoubtedly, until he was clothed in rags and all he could do was attach himself to a pig farmer and feed the pigs. And if he could have stomached the swill that they were, were being given, he would have eaten. And remember, Jesus is talking to, to Jewish people for whom a pig would be an unclean animal. So he's He's not pulling his punches. He was as low as he could be. And then there's that wonderful phrase in Scripture. And he came to himself. He came to himself. How many of my father's household have enough and to spare? Here I am, I'm starving to death. He would never have come to himself... If he had not been brought low. And and sometimes we need to pray that prayer for family and for friends, those whom we love the most. Bring him low to lift him up. Because until such times as he is brought as low as he needs to go, he never will look upward. If life is easy... (coughs) If life is easy, he will never... Turn to God in salvation and seek the face of the Lord. With the children of Judah have come together on that day in the temple to beseech the God of Judah if they had not been forced to, into the situation. Therefore, I say it's a blessing. Whenever the people of God are brought to the position of saying it's not in our own strength, we don't know what to do, but you do. And our eyes are on you. Then the people of God are in the best position possible. Wicked men had arisen and they even as the people of God had run out of options. They must look to God because salvation could only come from him. And for that member of your family, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a father or a mother, there are times when you must recognize that there's nothing more that you can do. And all that you can do is simply look to the Lord. We don't know what else we can do, but our eyes are on you. So Jehoshaphat appointed a fast throughout all Judah. He was calling on God's people to do business with God. You know, he can't legislate for their hearts, but he can exercise godly leadership. 
The second thing that we see here in the prayer is a careful prayer. The power of God is being brought to our attention. Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms. No one can withstand you. We might ask ourselves the question, for, for whose benefit was he saying this? Did God not know who he was? Did God need to be informed by Jehoshaphat that he was God in heaven that ruled over the nations? Well, clearly not. And, and, and yet this is the pattern of prayer and the best of prayers. When we stand beside Isaiah in the temple... When God shows himself in a wonderful way, we we hear of the the angels that fly around shouting, crying out, praising, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Are telling God something that he didn't know? That he was thrice holy? Well, of course not. It was a note of praise and of confidence in the God whom they worshipped. Jehoshaphat is leading the people of God and as he does so he wants to remind himself as well as the people of the God to whom he is making his prayers made known. And we as the people of God, although it is tempting to treat prayer as something not so very far removed as some sort of a Christmas wish list, a sort of wish list that children might make at Christmas time. This is a list of all the things that I would like uh, Santa Claus to bring. And leave it at that. Is that the sort of prayer which we are typically prone to give? I suspect it is. Because it's not just as it were that uh, it's our small children who are Immature in some respects. There are those who are adults who are immature also, or can be. And we can be immature in our prayers. It's not wrong to pray for those who are sick. We do it every Lord's Day. We we, we pray for those who mourn. We pray for those who are facing difficulties. And do so, and gladly and rightly so. But Jehoshaphat, as he leads the people in prayer, does not rush in to say, you know, there's a huge horde coming against us and we don't know what to do. That actually comes at the very end of the prayer. He begins by reminding himself in the presence of God, here is the God to whom I make my prayers known. The God that I worship, the God that I love, the God that I adore is the one who reigns supreme in heaven. He holds the hearts of kings and princes in his hand. As Proverbs says, he he turns them like a water course to irrigate the fields. There's the stream that runs down the side of the field and the farmer makes it flow into one field and when it is sufficiently watered, then he turns it so that the water is diverted and goes into another field. And and God holds in his hands the hearts of kings so that he can make them go 
whatever way he wants. This is the God whom we worship. And as we continue to reflect upon that, when, when we're facing difficulty, we know the, the horde is coming towards us, and we don't know what to do, but we do know the one who does know what to do and who will do it on behalf of his people. It strengthens the saints to be reminded who God is. This is the God we worship. We know him, and because we know him, we love him. And because we love him, we worship him. But there's a second element to the prayer of Jehoshaphat. It's intensely personal. I think it was Martin Luther that said that theology was done in the pronouns and in the possessive pronouns in particular. Perhaps around the lunch table today, as uh, you might reflect with your children, read the prayer again. It's not a long prayer. But pay attention particularly to the possessive pronouns. The God of our fathers. Did you not, our God, drive out before your people? Abraham, your friend. That's quite a claim now, isn't it? Abraham, your friend. Well, what does it mean to be God's friend? What does it mean to be God's friend if in the hour of need it doesn't do you any good? Perhaps you, like me, have grown not only alarmed but distressed by all the images that we see coming from Afghanistan and Kabul. And you wonder, what good is it being a friend of the United States if your friend leaves you? Does it not distress us? Well, if our God were to treat us in such a way, then we would have reason to despair. If he were to leave us to face our enemies on our own, we would say, what's the point of being a friend of God? But Jehoshaphat knows what he's doing in prayer. He not only is reminding himself and the people as he prays, he's bold enough, as it were, to remind God himself, we have a connection with you. And it's a sort of connection that Moses also made when Moses was speaking to God in prayer. And God is, is I think, testing Moses. You, you go up from here. And was it Moses says, well, that's fine, but we're only going if you go with us. 
Because how will the other people know that you are our God if you're not with us? That's what marks us off as being your people. What marks us off as being your people is that you are with us and you never leave us and you will never forsake us. So when Jehoshaphat is pouring out his heart before God, he's not just reminding himself, he's not just reminding the people so that they are strengthened in the place of prayer. He's also coming into the very presence of God and saying, you are our God. You're the friend of Abraham. We're the descendants of Abraham. You've promised yourself to us. And though we don't know how this is going to work out, we don't know what the future holds for us, we don't know how you're going to get us out of this jam, yet our eyes are upon you. He will not fail us. He will not forget us. A word to you, those of you who are our mothers, when you brought that infant child home from the hospital, was it possible for you to forget that nursing child? Or was not every waking moment thoughtful of the needs of that child? And yet a nursing mother will forget her child before God will forget his people. That's God's promise. You think, I I cannot imagine the situation where a mother would forget her nursing child. Can't imagine it. But that will happen before God forgets his people. A third element then in the prayer, there's a promise, chapter 20 at verse 9. If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And cry out to you in our affliction. And you will hear and save generations of God's faithfulness to his people. I was asked in the course of this week, is God done with the Jewish people? Let me answer that. Not only from Jehoshaphat as he pleads the cause of his, God's people, in the temple in Jerusalem, but in the New Testament in Romans chapter 11 and at verse 28. But as regards election, they, that is, Israelites, the Jewish people, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable now that's not just a, a quick aside although it answers a particular question 
he should give us confidence in the place of prayer. Because if God could cast off the Jewish people, why could he not cast me off? If God's election is revocable, he could revoke the election. If that would be true for the Jewish people, it could be true for me. But you see the argument here in Second Chronicles. God's election is irrevocable. And so we should look towards God to save the Jewish people and should be praying towards that end. As Wilhelmus Abrakel, the, the great Second Reformation theologian, pointed out in uh, his four-volume work, the Jewish people prayed for the salvation of the Gentiles. And now it's our turn to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. God's calling and election are sure. Jehoshaphat is making an immediate application Power and might, personal. He is our God in the face of a very real threat from Ammon and Moab. There is a final element. There is courageous submission. And just in brief passing, and it's uh, wonderfully encouraging. We, we, we want to, as it were, ring out every last blessing from Scripture as we read through God's Word. Verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord. And the sentence could have ended there. It would have still made sense. But it doesn't. With their little ones, their wives and their children. Not just the men of Judah... But in the place of worship, there are the children. As Peter said at Pentecost, because this promise is to you and to your children. If you were a man in Judah on that day, with the hordes of your enemies coming towards you, where would you want to gather your wives and your children? But in the place of worship... All Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Don't be afraid. Why not? Listen, verse 15, he said. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem And King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. And then he gives the reason why they are not to be afraid. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Well, I trust that that strikes a familiar note for you because we've been singing about that in our items of worship from the Psalms and from elsewhere. 
It's not your battle, it is the Lord's. Take a deep breath then and do what the Lord would have you do. Trust. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. Go out against the horde, but don't worry, you're not actually going to fight a battle. Now, if we're following through on what Scripture is saying here at this point, that not one person of the army of of Judah fell in battle. Not one person. They all came back safely to Jerusalem. And though it may be a little bit of a stretch to say that we would build a doctrine of election on that particular verse, we can at least see here's an application. When God goes out to fight his enemies, he will not lose one person in that battle. And all will be brought safely home to the new Jerusalem. You will not need to fight. Stand firm. Hold your position. And see the salvation Verse 17, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. And then repeated, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And they worshipped, they believed God, and they went and did And they sang, even as we have sung, thousands of years later on, but we're still worshipping the same God. Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. But they're saying this before the final consummation of God's promises. It's in anticipation. We don't read of what happens until later on. God gives thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. That's verse 21. It's not till verse 24. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. The word of God doesn't recall for us, record for us, what turned one a person against another, but something must have disrupted their alliance, and instead of fighting against Judah, they fought against one another and weren't satisfied until the last person had been killed. And all that was left for Judah to do was to go out amongst the dead bodies and pick up the spoil. Well, I would be hesitant to base just too much upon one reading, but here it does seem to me there's something of an illustration that when God fights the battle, he says, this is my war and I will accomplish it. You just do as I tell you, stand and the enemy will be destroyed. (laughs) The only thing that will leave for you to do is to go out and pick up the spoil. The blessings that will accrue to you because you were just exactly where God had appointed for you to be. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. 
The enemy had been vanquished. All they had to do was plunder them. In a moment we will come to the table that is spread before us. John chapter 14 tells us much of the sadness in the hearts and minds as we reflected just briefly in passing last Lord's Day when they were distressed at the very thought that Jesus would soon be taken from them. And Jesus, ever the great pastor of his flock, encouraged them and blessed them. Coming to the Lord's table is a solemn event, and it is meant to be. It is a recollection that in order for your sins and mine to be forgiven, it took the death of the Lord Jesus. Later, the disciples were gathered together in that same upper room where they had celebrated the Lord's Supper. And Peter led them in prayer. Uh, his, his prayer was not so far removed from Jehoshaphat's prayer. It, it begins by saying, Sovereign Lord, reminding himself, reminding his hearers that the God whom they worshipped and to whom they made their prayers known was the one who was sovereign over all. It may be that Pontius Pilate and Herod had gathered together against the Lord's anointed but says Peter in prayer, they only did what your sovereign will predestined for them to do. You see, they were already entering into the blessings that God had prepared for them. And so when we come to the Lord's table, yes, there is a looking back. We look back to the Passover. We look back even more significantly to that Occasion in the upper room where Jesus comforts his disciples and breaks for them that bread which was a symbol of his body and pours out the wine, the symbol of his blood. But it does have a future reference. That though the hordes might face us and the world might turn against us, We might grow horribly afraid at times when we do not know what to do. We seek the Lord. And we know that he will never let us down. The battle is ultimately his. And the man who thinks that he can overcome God is a fool. They only did what your sovereign will predestined for them to do. So we read through the Old Testament scriptures and it becomes for us something of a picture book. And when each one of us were younger, perhaps we particularly enjoyed those picture books that children have. And as a a loving father or mother or grandparent sits down with a grandchild upon his or her need and reads the story, the child hears the story and looks at the picture 
and in delights of them. And so we, we read through the stories of the Old Testament. We read them to our children. Do you see what God is doing? Do you see even when all was dark and they didn't know what to do, God did. And the end of the story is that the people of God were blessed immeasurably. It took them three days just to gather up the spoil. Goodness knows how they managed to stagger back to Jerusalem with their arms filled. You can imagine just a handful of those that were left behind in Jerusalem, perhaps their wives and their little ones, as they see the dust being kicked up on the horizon as the people of Judah, the men that went out to war, were returning. And they say, it looks exactly the same size of army as those that went out. No great catastrophe then. But then as they see their men folk returning, they see them with their arms laden with the blessings that God had poured out upon them. Can you, can you hear the voices of the women and the boys and girls saying, this is the Lord's doing and it is wondrous in our eyes. We come to the Lord's table and one day we will be at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And you and I will turn to one another on that great day and say this is the Lord's doing and it is wondrous in our eyes. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we do thank thee for the story of Jehoshaphat. We thank thee, Father, even as his weaknesses are laid bare for us to see. For we see ourselves in him. We have our highs and we have our lows. And we recognize, Father, there are times when the enemy comes towards us and we don't know what to do. The obstacle seems so great. The enemy seems so strong. And all we can do is come into thy presence and remind ourselves and in boldness in prayer would even remind thee that we are thy people. We are called by thy name. The world knows us as Christians. Though we're not worthy of that lovely name. Yet would we wear it as a badge of honor. We belong to Christ. And because we belong to thee we will not falter or fail. that thou wilt see us safely through every trial and tribulation because we are still thy people and thou art our God. Hear us, we pray. 
in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.